everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, Advent season. You know, we are what's known as a free church or a non-denominational church. That means that we're not typically the kind of church that rigorously follows the church calendar. I think in some ways to our own detriment, probably. There's something really rich about the church calendar. But for those of you who are rusty on your church calendars, it's not like there'll be a test. We're in a season of Advent. We're actually not quite at Christmas. We're at Advent. Advent is a season of expectation. We expect all kinds of things at Advent, but one of the most powerful things that we expect is that light shines in dark places. That's really a lot of what we look at in Advent in the wonderful words of John the Gospelizer, where John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. When we hear that phrase, the light shines in the darkness, I think our tendency, especially at Advent, is we can think of darkness out there. And we look around and we see uh, culture, even this week, there's unbelievable tornadoes that just rip through in minutes. Uh, the school shooting this week, it does not take much to look around our world, our community, and find a lot of darkness and, and wonder when is light going to come and shine light on that darkness. What I'd like to do this morning is actually not explore darkness out there and light out there, but darkness in here and light in here. Advent in our interior world, not just our exterior one. It could it be that if we had uh, held Advent expectation and Advent wonder, and we first let it infiltrate the darkness of our thinking patterns, our inner world, the chaos that we carry around us every day. And I think if we're going to do that, we have to start with the Gospels. And when we hear the word gospel, we typically think of Jesus, but gospel actually, before it was ever a religious word, it was just a political word. Back in Jesus' day, gospel was not a religious word. It was actually stolen. Actually, one of my favorite things about this word is the way Luke and Paul and the authors of the New Testament, they boldface stole a word from the Roman Empire that the Roman Empire used, and they dragged it inside their religion. Gospel simply means good news, and at the end of the day... If we want to be really crass, a, a gospel, it's actually just a marketing message. That, that's really all a gospel is. It's a marketing message, and there's many, many gospels floating around. I had the incredible privilege this last week of being in Times Square, New York City. And yes, it is as magical as you'd imagine at Christmas and also disgusting. I'm sorry to say this, but what a dirty city. Rats everywhere late at night. I'm walking home, kicking rats out of the way. They don't talk about that when they light that Rockefeller tree. But um, Times Square and Times Square, just this massive outdoor billboard with about 100,000 tourists taking selfies. You're stubbing your toe on tourists and you're looking at these, these just humongous billboards, and I'm walking through Times Square, and there's, there's like an 80-foot-tall Brad Pitt, and he's looking right at me, and he's drinking a cup of espresso, and then just a little branding under Brad, it says Nespresso, which is a brand, and I'm watching Brad drink that espresso, and he just made it look really good. He just looked so at peace. Like if I drank Nespresso coffee, maybe my life would be as content as Brad's. Maybe I would even look like Brad. At, at a basic level, you could simply say that a gospel offers a path and a promise. 
That's all the gospel is. It's a path and a promise. If you do these things, you will get this thing. If you want this life, do these things. This is the path you have to walk on, and then this is the promise that you get. And actually, as you study all kinds of gospels, the Nespresso gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel in the Roman Empire, um, they all basically offer the same promise, which is freedom, peace, and love. That's in some form or another, pretty much every gospel is offering the same promise, freedom, peace, and love. The challenge is, who's telling the truth? And what do I have to do to get it? So the invitation this morning is very simple, just to get very clear on what gospel we believe in. Those of us who are followers of Christ, we would say, well, you're supposed to believe in one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in actuality, most of us who are followers of Christ, we actually believe in a couple of dozen gospels. I know as I examine my life, I'm chasing, to be frank, all kinds of paths to get all kinds of promises and it can get pretty exhausting. I I think actually it explains why we need a nap once in a while because we're chasing so many gospels, particularly in this culture. I think it's why some people binge on Hallmark movies because we we need an escape from the tyranny of all these gospel paths and promises. I believed a number of gospels in my life and if I had to summarize my whole life, I would simply say that I've spent the majority of my life Trying, trying to believe, trying to believe the best gospel I've ever heard, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think what has surprised me is how hard it actually can be to believe the best gospel I've ever heard. Why is that? I've been a follower of Christ for three decades, and still to this day, it can be difficult to believe. I became a Christian when I was a teenager, and before that, before I was a Christian, I would say I was living for a gospel of what I would call 1980s Aussie teenage gospel. It's probably not unlike the 1980s American teenage gospel. The promise, like if it's a path and a promise, the promise was popularity. At a deeper level, I think under the promise of popularity, the promise was fitting in, belonging. The path, there were two paths, one path, be weird. I knew I didn't have a shot at that. I was just a straight arrow kid. I didn't know how to ride a skateboard and wear all black. And that's what you had to do, at least in the 1980s. So I tried the other path. The other path to fitting in and belonging, make a girl laugh, be good at academics, be good at sports. Three things, that's what you needed to do. Um, And now, if you could do two out of three, I think that would work, but three out of three, you're golden. Three out of three means you're popular. Three out of three means you don't go home and replay everything in your mind and question how you'll ever fit in. So making a girl laugh, being good at sports, good at academics, that's the path to the promise of acceptance, which gives you peace and freedom and love. And for those of you who like to keep score, I was zero for three in the teenage gospel. Um, I was feeling very lost and quite alone when my big sister, Tony, who had been a Christian for a couple of years, introduced me to the gospel of Christ. By the way, I knew I didn't have a shot at getting through this message. Seven minutes in, not bad. Tony had become a follower of Christ a couple of years ago, and she was the only person in our extended family to become a follower of Christ. And uh, she and then the people at the church uh, showed me the wonder of the gospel, which 
isn't so much that you find it, it's more that you're found. Um, Jesus finds you. And when you feel so utterly lost, it's an amazing thing to be found by a loving God. For those of you who are not followers of Christ, that's why you jump in. People talk about sin and heaven and hell, but the heart of the gospel is that you're found, that there is a, a God in this universe who knows you and uh, who loves you very particularly. And so I owe my big sister a lot. Early on, she would remind me of that once in a while. I owe her my very soul. And uh, I, I wish she could be here uh, today, and I wish my parents could too. Uh, but of course, COVID is a pesky thing. And uh, it's not that difficult to leave Australia. It's just very, very hard to get back in. So uh, they're not able to be with us here. But I do just want to pause and just take a moment uh, to, to do some thank yous. Um, for some people here in this church. Uh, when I first came to Discovery, 2005, uh, Lisa and I had never led a church before. We had been in local church leadership for 10 or 12 years, but we had not been lead pastors, and it was really the elders. That uh, was Joe Mylan, Lene Spicer, Tom Morris, and Chris Sewell, who took us under their wing and said, oh, we think you can do this. And we really weren't sure. I remember some of those early starting points, those of you who have been through our membership class. I remember uh, a, a brand new member named Eric Muller pulling me aside in starting point and saying, uh, Pastor Steve, I don't think you should be telling us that you don't know if you can lead a church. It's very confusing to us who are visiting the church. This is, we just didn't know. And so those first elders, all the way through the eldership to the current elders we have today, Amy Hayes, Alina Rich, our chair and vice chair, Steve LaPosa, John Neal, Cody Gratney, Corey Livingston, and Eric Berger. Uh, just the joy it has been to serve with you. Um, as many of you know, I do a lot of work now with a lot of pastors around the world. And I have to be careful when I talk about my elders because I have it so good and that's unusual. Also for the staff at Discovery, some of our old timers, uh, Tom Morris, Jake Brown, Jen Webster, Renee Loring, Jimmy Carnes, and Nancy Movic. These are the people that have co-labored with me. It's very common that uh, unfortunately, it's the primary preacher that gets most of the attention in the church because we're up front most, but these are the people that have become the very fabric of our church and continue to serve it uh, so passionately. And they've served many of them for well over a decade with me. About five or six years ago, God was gracious to bring us some new blood, and we needed it. Uh, Kelsey and Brendan Reed, uh, Alex and Emily. We have two, uh, they call themselves retired pastors. I've never seen a retired person work as hard and faithfully as my dear father-in-law, Dan Pence, and of course, my mother-in-law, Sue, and, and Johnny and Carol Hill, who serve in our pastoral care at this church. And even our most recent staff, uh, Corbin Flash and Mike Ruggles, serving less than two years with us and rapidly becoming essential uh, to the body of Christ. Several years ago, I realized that if I was going to thrive in ministry, I had to build friendships both inside this church and outside, and I wouldn't be here uh, today without my dear friends who have loved me so well, uh, Dave Runyon, Jay Pathak, Matt Carlson, and Kevin Cologne, who couldn't be here because he's in France. And finally, uh, I just want to thank 
my kids, uh, Bryson, Andrew, and Kaylee, uh, the amount of Sundays where they were backstage praying over me before I preached, uh, it's really something. And of course, my beloved wife, Lisa, who in every possible way is a co-laborer in Christ and a co-pastor with me, and I couldn't have done this role without her. And finally, uh, I just want to thank you, my church family. I owe a brief apology to the Salmon Pants Club. Um, Kurt, I had the pants on until about an hour ago. I just couldn't make them work today, man. I couldn't do it. And uh, I guess we all grow in different ways. Five years ago, I never would have put this much attention into what I wear. And here I am now trying on Salmon Pants and taking them off and knowing that I'd be letting the brigade down. But I just want to thank our church family because... Uh, you have loved our family well, uh, you've taught us a lot, and uh, what we have come to learn in pastoring a church is that as a healthy church is not one where all the care and leadership come from one person or from one direction, but is a free flow of exchange between the many, and that's been our experience at this church, and uh, it's just an absolute thrill to me to commend to you, Zach, as our next pastor, and also to commend to Zach. Uh, you as the, as the best congregation that he could ever hope for. So, Gospels, what they do is they offer a path and a promise. You have to do something or go on some journey or sacrifice something and then you get something you want. So one of the things that you can do this week as you prepare your heart and mind for Christmas is you can be simply making a very simple question, what Gospels do I believe in? And once you get clear on some of the Gospels you believe in, not just the Gospel of Jesus, but the other things that you put your, your faith and your hope in, you can start to ask yourself the simple question, what path does it put me on and what promise does it offer? And is it good for its word? Is it lying to me? Is it sending me down a path of doom or is it actually giving me what it promises, which it claims freedom, peace, and love? The gospel of Jesus is weird because Jesus is the path and Jesus is the promise. Basically, the path and the promise is the same thing. Jesus is the path to Jesus. When you first hear it, it feels like a trick, but it, it works. And I guess if you want to get really technical, it's because the the promise isn't Jesus, the promise is what Jesus can give to us, which is peace, freedom, and love. That's actually what we get with Jesus. We get freedom from our shame and regret. We get peace in the deepest corpuscles of our being. We, we get to relax into the unconditional love of the creator of the universe. Every other gospel, every other gospel, you have to pay something. It, it costs you with Jesus, Jesus does the paying. That's the other thing that makes the gospel of Jesus weird. In the gospel of Christ, the God pays for the sake of the human rather than the other way around. As you start to examine the things that you believe, the things that you're putting your trust in, the, the areas of your life that you're hoping for something, uh, these false gospels, one of the simple questions you can ask, once you get clear on the path and the promise, you can simply ask yourself the question, well, who's paying here? Who's paying? You know, anytime a telemarketer calls and they tell me they have a free offer, that's what I'm asking. Well, who's really paying? Am I paying? Uh, you say it's free. I don't think that's true. All of these gospels... All the things you have to do to appease the God, to please the God, to keep the God off your back. But in the true gospel, 
that God pays for the sake of the human. Now, in the days of Advent, the first Advent, the, the first time before Jesus was born, there were a few core gospels floating around. Uh, there was a gospel in the Roman Empire called the Pax Romana. It's just Latin. Uh, oftentimes preachers get up here and we use a different language just to sound more intelligent, but that is what it was called. The Pax Romana it just means the peace of Rome. There was a Roman poet named Virgil, and he would follow Caesar Augustus around. Caesar Augustus was such a big deal. He had an entourage, like some of those Hollywood stars, and one of his entourage was a poet named Virgil, and poet would write all these wonderful things about Caesar Augustus. Caesar's adopted dad was Julius Caesar. You learned about him in middle school. Julius Caesar died, and then Augustus declared his dad as a god. Now that daddy is gone, dad's a god, and that's why Virgil wrote a poem about Caesar Augustus offering the peace of Rome where he said, the day that Caesar Augustus was born is a day of gospel. He actually used that word. It's a day of good news. It's a day of, here's another word he used, glad tidings. Like Virgil's basically stealing our Christmas carol lyrics for the sake of Caesar Augustus. And he says, and through the wonder of the Son of God, Caesar Augustus is the Son of God, you can get peace and glad tidings and joy. Isn't that crazy? Now, the problem with the Pax Romana is it was one of those gospels that benefited the very few, and the massive majority had to pay so the very few could get the benefit. That's how you know it's a false gospel. It's, it's kind of like a multi-level marketing scheme. Only the tiny percentage actually make money. The minions un underneath, it's costing you everything. But that was the Roman gospel, and if you didn't s uh, square up with it, you got oppressed, you got killed, you got on the wrong end of a crucifix. Uh, the only way to get it is you had to be born lucky, born as a Roman citizen. Um, if if you were, had your wits about you, one of the things you could do is you could enslave yourself to a Roman family and hope that their children all died so that when the husband died, he would bequeath his estate to you. This was the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. It, also, there was a gospel in Jesus' day uh, and it was the gospel of Judaism, Jesus' own people, and they had a path and a promise. And in some ways, it was very helpful for some people because it gave them a very strict way of life while they were being oppressed by Rome. It came with a very complex set of rules, rights and wrongs. A lot of these wrongs were unspoken. You just didn't know you did wrong until you did it. And then suddenly the religious police would be on your door. The target of being okay with God was very hard to hit and you carried a lot of low-level shame your whole life because you had to sacrifice um, and financial offerings. Um, if you had money, you could sacrifice a sheep, but if you were poor, you would sacrifice a pigeon because even back in the Roman Empire, there were too many pigeons, and so whoever invented this religious scheme, they were also environmentalists, and they'd listen to Elton John's song, The Circle of Life, and they just they said, okay, well, there's a lot of poor and there's a lot of pigeons. We'll just have the poor sacrifice pigeons. That'll help with the pigeon population control. I'm speaking way too long about pigeons. But I, I sometimes wonder if this is why the church exploded in the book of Acts, because the one true gospel came along, and it wasn't exclusive for a few. It was for anybody. And it wasn't religiously oppressive it, it didn't matter what you'd done, and it didn't matter what had been done to you. Outside of the church, you were human trash. Maybe you 
maybe your husband died when you were 24 and you had three kids and your only way of putting food on the plate was to be a prostitute. And so they shaved your head and everybody knew that you were a prostitute. But inside the church, you'd walk in the door and the apostle Paul himself would give you a veil to wear. And he'd say, here's a veil for you to wear because inside the church, you're somebody. Because in the Roman Empire, if you were a woman and you had a veil, that meant you were somebody. You had status. And outside the church, you're absolute human garbage. We will exploit you to get our gospel. But inside the church, you're a precious daughter of the king. You're my sister in Christ. Here's a veil for you to wear to remember Sunday after Sunday after somebody. You're somebody. God sees you. And most importantly, a gospel where where the God pays the human benefits. The human is rooted and established in love. Whatever you've done, wash clean. Whatever's been done to you, the, the scars remain but redeemed. The old is gone, new creation. It's so hard to believe I think it's because what Frederick Bigner says about it. He says it's, it's so true, it's too good to be true. What I found in my life is where I have to learn how to believe it is in the battle for my mind. The darkness that happens inside my head. I have struggled to believe this gospel for most of my adult life. Uh, I can tell somebody else that God unconditionally and particularly loves them, but I've struggled to experience it for myself. There was for years a gap between what I say I believe and what I actually experience from God. And there's a number of complex reasons for this. I, I was raised by an amazing family, but two of the stories I told myself from my family of origin from being a kid growing up was others have it worse than you do, and it's not that bad. Whatever's going on with you, others have it worse and whatever's going on with you, it's not that bad. So even at a very simple level in in an area that doesn't matter much, maybe I'm playing on a trampoline and I scrape my knee and I come inside to get a Band-Aid and my parents in 1970s, saliva-based parents, you know, saliva-based parents, when they lick it and do that, then they send you back out to play and they say, it's not that bad and others have it worse. And both of those statements are absolutely true. And I would say that I was raised by first-class parents, but the meaning that I made out of that as a kid was don't bother God when you have a need. If others always have it worse and it's not that bad, then don't bother God with your problems. And over time, I would build then a Teflon layer around my heart with a a little door cut in and a a key on the inside so I could let people in and out on, on my terms. About six years ago, it was 2015, where I got fed up with this idea that I didn't believe that God loved me, particularly this, this gospel that I say I believe, but that I struggled to believe. And it was about six years ago I started minding the gap, wondering if I could dig deeper and let God's light shine in some deeper places and some darker places in my life. And what I really started to pay attention to was the way that the story I told myself was speaking louder to me than the story that Jesus was telling me. This, I believe, is the battle for our mind. The story I tell myself, it is absolutely a gospel. It has a path and it offers a promise. But any time I fall into that story, 
It puts me on a path that exhausts me. I pay, it costs me, and it never delivers on its promise. There's never hope. It's always doom. It's always condemnation. I'm talking specifically about the inner critic, the inner critic, every one of us, we, we have a story we tell ourselves. It's, it's the way we make meaning out of the world. It's the way we take in information. It's that filter between what's happening and the way we process it. But a part of the story we tell ourselves is this subset called the inner critic. It's that voice that speaks up when you don't live up to your own standards. I don't know what standards you have for yourself, but anytime you fall short of your own standards, it's the voice that says, well, what my voice says to me is, you should know better by now. But it's always in a condescending tone. If you really pay attention to the voice of your inner critic, it often has a tone. And mine, if I were to picture it visually, it's like this. It's looking down on me, arms crossed like it knows better than me, and I've done something wrong, or I didn't like the way I did something, or I tried the salmon pants on this morning. I'm like, they just don't look good. And the inner critic is saying, you should know better by now. Um, at, at, at the harshest, my inner critic says, you're really stupid. I, I shared this story several years ago. I remember the turning point in my life was 2016. I was knee deep in a trout stream in a beautiful part of Colorado. I was fly fishing. I could see the trout. They were actively feeding and I couldn't for the life of me catch a trout. And I was feeling more and more stupid. And I, I remember my inner critic saying to me, see how stupid you are? You're so stupid. You're not even smarter than a stupid fish. That's the gospel of the inner critic taking an incredible hobby that is designed to connect me to God in worship and wonder and using it as a voice of condemnation. I'm not going to ask you to do this now, but if this is something you'd like to do on your own this week, or particularly for those of you who are in some kind of a midweek community, you could do two things, and I'll put this on the screen for you. What message does your inner critic send? I was sharing for you just a couple of the messages of mine. You should know better by now. Uh, you're so stupid. These would be just some of the many messages the inner critic sends. Um, and, and what I've noticed is if I'd never get it out and never say it, it just stays rattling around in my brain and it has way too much real estate in my brain. But when you have the courage and the vulnerability, it's a very vulnerable thing to do, to, to sit in front of somebody who cares about you, somebody who you consider uh, safe, and you just share the message of your inner critic. Now you have it. And it doesn't so much have a hold of you like autopilot, like a script, but you have it. And when you've got it, now you can do something with it. You can, you can give it to God. And so just a two-step exercise that anyone can try this week. Number one, what message does your inner critic send? And number two, how would you describe it to someone? How would you describe it to someone? What adjectives would you use? One of the tools that we do and we'll be doing it this Tuesday with our leadership community right here with our staff, we'll actually get in groups of four or five and one person will bravely be on the hot seat. They're going to share their inner critic and the other three or four are going to write down the adjectives and the metaphors that come to mind. I've been doing this exercise now for a couple of years with, gosh, by now a couple of thousand people probably. And what I hear when you get to the descriptions is people say condemning, harsh, unrelenting, unforgiving. And then people use metaphors, in a hole, drowning, caged. 
That's the gospel. Those descriptors are describing the gospel that your inner critic is sending you. But here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 19 and 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. This, John says, is how we know we belong to the truth. That's the gospel of Jesus. It's true. Every other gospel we put our faith in is false, and it leads us down a path of doom and death. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ actually sets us free. And John actually gives us almost a formula here to to learn how we can be set free from even some of the darker gospels in our own thinking. He says, even when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. And I love this last phrase by John because it's almost a threat. John's very polite. He's very kind. He's the, he's the disciple that Jesus loved and all of that. But I love the threat that John puts at the end where John's basically saying, you think you know better than God? That's, it's kind of a threat. It's kind of a, like an Italian mafia move. God knows everything, John says. Who are you to think you know more than God? Uh, this may sound odd to you, but Queen Elizabeth is my sovereign. Um, I know most of you like to dump tea in a harbor, but there's a handful of us in the room that we don't mind saluting the queen once in a while. We've got two coins in our pocket. We've got Lincoln's head in one pocket, but we've got the queen's head on a coin in our pocket too. And, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't affect my day-to-day life that Queen Elizabeth is my monarchy. And also, I grant you, like United States, Australia holds a polite grudge against England for sending us to Terra Australis all those years ago on convict ships and putting us in chain gangs to get a new country started. And yes, in case you're curious, on my mother's side of the family, we were started by a mule thief who got married to a prostitute. John and Catherine Warby had 14 children after they'd served their seven-year prison sentence in Australia. A mule thief married to a prostitute. All my life, I thought he was a horse thief, and two summers ago, my aunt said he was a mule thief. I've, I've lost all respect for him now. I just can't even look him in the eye anymore. Anyway, the point is the queen's my sovereign. And while I doubt that I'm going to meet her, if I was summoned, I would go and meet her. And there's very strict rules when you meet your sovereign. When you meet, you do not begin the conversation. You wait and she speaks and then you can speak back. But you may not correct the queen. So for example, can you imagine mansplaining to the queen? Like you just wouldn't ever do it. And it's fascinating to me that those of us who are followers of Christ, God is our sovereign. It's really interesting in the free church, the the kind of church we're in, sometimes we talk about God's sovereignty like we're really the sovereign. Like I've had a number of conversations with very well-meaning people. They mean well, and they'll say something like, God's not on the throne of my life right now. And I just keep saying to them, you don't have nearly that power to knock God off the throne of anything. God's sovereign. Like God is on the throne of your life whether you act like it or not. God is objectively on the throne of your life. Even if you're not a follower of Christ, God is still on the throne of your life. But it's interesting, we get so casual with God, we forget that when God speaks, that is reality, and we do not speak back. 
I don't mean in a way that's fearful. God's not like the Queen of England where I have to wait to be summoned. The author of Hebrews says, I can walk into God's office anytime I want. I don't even need an appointment. Dad's working. He's going to put the phone down the day I knock on the door. For a guy that thinks that others have it worse and it's not that bad, that's some of the best news I've ever heard in my life, that I can bother God anytime and he's delighted to hear from me. But I'll tell you this. Learning to believe what God says over what I say about myself, that's where faith rubber hits the road. God says we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and we say, well, we could be better. God says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we say, we'll take it from here, God, I'll condemn myself. It's interesting, isn't it, the voice of your inner critic and the voice of condemnation, the way it never actually leads you anywhere. It just, it's like watching dirty dancing. It's like baby in a corner. It just keeps you stuck. It doesn't move you. That's the difference between the condemnation of your inner critic and the conviction of the Holy Spirit when you actually do something wrong and need to repent and repair and restore so you can then be free and at peace. I love the way the message translates the same passage. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism. Even something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and he knows more about us than we do ourselves. It's difficult, isn't it, to be loved by God? To stand there like a man or a woman and receive the love of God. No pretense, no control, no Teflon on our hearts, nothing to protect us from pain and rejection, no self-condemnation. I wonder this Advent season what our life might be like if we realize that the light is available in that dark place. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? I'm just going to give you a moment to fill in the blank for yourself. And as we do, I'm going to have Jimmy and Alex and the team come out as they sing with us to prepare us for communion. What if I were at least as kind to myself? What if I were at least as patient with myself? What if I were at least as forgiving of myself as God is? What I've learned is you can't really stop your inner critic from showing up. You, I've tried that. It, it keeps showing up to work. But you don't have to pay it a salary. And you certainly don't have to give it the corner office of your brain. Why is it that you're giving some of the best real estate of your brain to the voice of condemnation? instead of by faith, giving the best real estate of your brain to your creator who loves you. What path are you on? What promise is being offered? I'm just going to invite everyone as we close just to take everything out of your hands. This is a common practice we have here at Discovery. And just, I will ask you to close your eyes. And this is a, a simple prayer of exchange. It, it's a silent prayer of exchange where you give God the voice of condemnation and then you ask God to give you the gospel. And just some quiet as you do that now. 